Hey everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. Really pumped you're joining us today. Uh, at Adherent Apologetics, we talk about philosophy, theology, and apologetics. And as always, the show is brought to you by your support at patreon.com slash Adherent Apologetics. If you enjoy the show, encourage you to become a patron and support the show as we keep on going. Uh, today, I'm here with Dr. Craig Blomberg. He's a distinguished professor at the, at the New Testament in Denver Seminary. He's written a lot of amazing books, uh, really a fantastic scholar. Uh, Craig, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to be talking about the reliability of the Gospels. We're going to respond to a lot of the common objections you'll see to the reliability of the Gospels. I think that uh, today on the line we'll see it. Oh, but what about X or what about Y? And we're going to be talking a lot about some of those things. And we'll also be opening it to questions if you're listening live at the end. Uh, but just to start off, could you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do in case someone doesn't know who you are? Well, you've already given them my name, Craig Blomberg. Uh, I teach at Denver Seminary. I've been there for the last 34 years, so uh, quite quite the old guy. And uh, I teach a full range of New Testament and Greek classes. And uh, on the side, I do a lot of writing and speaking, and uh, especially since COVID, uh, appearing online. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like for everyone, and more or less, if you're a student or anything, you're doing a lot more online over the past four or five months. So just to kick things off here, obviously, you know, you've done a lot of work in the Gospels, especially in Luke, Acts, uh, all kinds of stuff. But just generally speaking, as a Christian, we may say the Gospels are reliable or we can trust the Gospels. Like, why do you think that we can say something like that as Christians in just a, just a very general sense? It's hard to come up with uh, one general uh, answer. There are so many. Uh, if you approach the narrative parts of the Bible, and particularly the stories of Jesus, the Gospels in the New Testament, and apply to them the criteria that you would apply to any other seemingly historical or biographical work of the ancient world, um, they come out with flying colors from questions of how close in time to the events uh, being described they were written, to how carefully they've been transmitted and translated, to the embarrassing things that haven't been whitewashed over, to um, corroboration from archaeology, from um, other documents in the ancient world. Um, the list goes on. Uh, I would challenge anybody to find uh, a group of texts from that same period that has uh, anywhere close to as good uh, support. Hmm. So did I cut you off? Are you going to add anything else there? No, that's it. Okay, Awesome. So there's one thing I want to br bring up that I think you talk about. It's really interesting. It's the idea of the criterion of embarrassment, um, the idea that there's embarrassing things that wouldn't be put in the Gospels unless they're really trying to be accurate, authentic accounts. I've noticed that this has come up more and more in circles, especially like um, from the online realm that I guess I'm a part of. Uh, so I think one of the most common objections to the criterion of embarrassment is that Christians only use it for the Gospels. Um, so do you see like that criterion of, of embarrassment used in like other sources or like why do you think that this is like an a valid thing that we can use when bringing up the reliability of the Gospels? Certainly. If, if you look at some of the other uh, ancient Greek histories, and, and Greek histories tended to be uh, heavily weighted in uh, the area of warfare and kings and military generals and their uh, 
battles. Uh, I've done a little bit of specialized work uh, a number of years ago on some of the ancient Greek lives of Alexander the Great. You will find exactly the, the same kind of argument that uh, if uh, an author, especially quoting an earlier source, uh, takes the main character and says some things that put him in something of an unflattering light, especially if that writer uh, is generally positive toward that individual and, and supportive of them. That's precisely the kind of thing that uh, classical scholars would say uh, enhances the case that it really happened this way. Mm. So do you have like an, a specific example you could point someone to off the top of your head? I know I didn't send you anything about this, but for someone that may be skeptical of what you just brought up, is there like somewhere specific you could point to them to look about this idea? Um, I would point them to uh, a book by Michael Lacona called Why Are There Differences uh, in the Gospels? Um, who has examined Plutarch, uh, late first, early second century uh, biographer um, who included uh, a life of Alexander among his biographies. Um, no, I can't quote you a uh, chapter and verse of Plutarch uh, <laughs> off the top of my head, but uh, you will see that and numerous other um, parallels to the kinds of biographical writing that you find in the New Testament. Awesome. So Let's get, let's go on here. Um, let's talk about this idea that the gospels are anonymous. I think that one of the most common things uh, uh, we'll see in any sort of debate, especially from a non-Christian, is that we're believing in these documents. Uh, we'll just start about the not about when they were written. Let's start with the idea that they're anonymous. Like you know, see it posed like, well, if we don't know who wrote, wrote the gospels, why can we trust them? There's no claim to authorship in the gospels. So like, when you hear the idea that the gospels are anonymous, like, what's kind of your reaction to that? Uh, two different kinds of reactions. Um, on the one hand, that's absolutely true. And we don't want to put uh, undue weight on that fact, because as you even started to say in your question, uh, what often is much more important uh, than knowing uh, who an author was is where and when they wrote and were they in a position to have access to accurate information? Um, on the other hand, uh, there is uh, an unbroken and unanimous tradition on the part of uh, Christian writers beginning already in the second century, less than uh, 100 years after uh, these Gospels were published, and in the case of John, uh, possibly less than half that period of time, that says, they were um, written by the four names that we now associate them with, Matthew and John, who were two of Jesus' 12 closest followers, uh, Mark, who was the part-time companion of both Peter and Paul, but probably best known for deserting Paul on his first missionary journey, and not the character you probably would uh, ascribe uh, something important to uh, because of that embarrassing fact. Luke, who appears by name a couple of times at the end of Paul's letters, but as his part-time traveling companion and physician. And other than that, we know next to nothing about him. Again, a rather obscure character, um, not the kind of individual that 
ancient apocryphal gospels, in fact, were attributed to. Matthew was one of the 12, but he was a converted tax collector and perhaps next only to Judas who betrayed him. Again, not your one of your top nine picks, so to speak, uh, if you just wanted to try to gain credibility but didn't actually have any to begin with. Uh, you can reject all of that out of hand, but um, I think that's harder to do and to be fair historically than a lot of people think. But even if you do, there would be widespread scholarly agreement that all that means is that someone who was a disciple or a, a close and younger companion of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was the author uh, because of the dates that we have to put on those texts. And that still puts you at most, um, or I should say at, at worst, within uh, a chain of two people uh, mm. from an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. Mm. So I think that a question that kind of I have that stems from this is why don't we see, um, let's just take the Gospel of John, for example. John's an apostle of Jesus. Um, so if John writes this Gospel um, in probably the late first century, why doesn't he just write that like in the beginning or the end or somewhere like that? Like, hey, I'm John. I saw these things. Like, why don't you think we don't see something like that in the Gospels? There were all kinds of literary conventions in the ancient world. There were writers who identified themselves. Uh, there were writers who didn't. Um, modesty, not wanting to draw attention to oneself mm. when one is primarily focusing on uh, another character, as in a biography, is one of those reasons. Sometimes, and since you're throwing issues at me that you didn't prepare me for, I'll throw one at you that <laughs> you probably it. prepared for. But... Um, the whole debate over pseudonymity, about writing not just anonymously, but in the name of someone who uh, was a well-known figure. Uh, if someone was your teacher, you might at times use their name in a world without footnotes or bibliography as a way of saying, this is what I think Zach would have said if he were alive uh, and here in this situation. So we have to become familiar with the, the ancient conventions of writing and not automatically judge them by modern standards that may not have been theirs. Mm. Right. So I think another one of the most common objections that we'll see uh, is this idea that, and I'll throw you a question that's on the list, so you should be <laughs> Okay. I'm, I'm used to curveballs, sliders, knuckleballs. I'm secretly an atheist just looking to destroy you and show that my beliefs are superior. I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> no, that wasn't a question. <laughs> I oh, was just okay. joking. I was just joking and oh, saying okay. that I'm an atheist and I I'm just weird right. to throw a curveball at you. Uh, so, but I think something that is really important is the idea of the dating of the Gospels. And obviously, you know, different scholars, someone like you may have a different dating of the Gospels than someone like a Bart Ehrman or another New Testament scholar that may not be a Christian. Uh, but I'm sure you would assume that, especially within uh, the time from the death of Christ to the first gospel, we have a few decades in between. So I right. think that a lot of people may assume that there may be some sort of like legendary development in the gospels because, you know, you have a few decades for things to be added that may have not happened. Like you get all these miracles in the gospels, which is a different topic. Um, but 
So like when we talk about this idea that there might be legendary development because of some sort of like a telephone game, like how do you look at that um, with the reliability of the scriptures? Again, we have to look at what people did in the first century rather than what we might imagine they might have done. Um, the telephone game where uh, usually with children, but you could do it with adults too and probably have a fun time, uh, at least Western adults, uh, whisper a fairly long and uh, complicated message into somebody's ear so nobody else hears it but them. And whatever they think they heard, they turn and whisper to the person next to them. And you do that seven, eight, 10, 12 times and then say, okay, last person, what do you think you heard? Say it out loud. And it's very rarely accurate. Uh, and sometimes it's hilarious. Kenneth Bailey, who was a scholar uh, who spent most of his adult life teaching at the Near East uh, School of Theology in Beirut in Lebanon, likes to tell the story that he would play that game with his largely uh, Arabic background speaking students. And first of all, they were reluctant to do it because they didn't understand the point of it. But he basically said, humor me. And the second thing was, once he had done playing it, they always got the saying exactly right. Mm. Um, because they came from a an oral culture. Ours is a written culture that does not emphasize memorization. Um, oral cultures or uh, semi-oral cultures uh, don't assume that everyone can read. And if they can, they don't assume that everyone can have access to things written down. And so the more important uh, story, a person, uh, part of history, um, an epic saga is to one of those cultures, the more they are likely to commit it to memory. And we have records and we have uh, modern parallels as well. Uh, to ancient rabbis memorizing the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. Uh, a gospel is maybe about a tenth as long as that, if even that much. Um, in the Greek world, when kids were young, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey were sometimes committed to memory, um, often with the help of music uh, or chanting or rhythm. And uh, for people who are still skeptics, I like to tell them that my two daughters, when they were both uh, teenagers, loved to play uh, in the era of uh, CDs, four musical CDs that we had. Um, Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, um, Man of La Mancha, and the collected works of Veggie Tales. And uh, they had the entire music and libretto to all four of those committed to memory without ever having sat down once to try to memorize them. But I didn't want to listen to those tapes that much once they both moved out of the house because we had heard them so often. <laughs> people can memorize, people did memorize. They didn't play the telephone game. <laughs> I got you. Um, so I think one thing that might be helpful here uh, is this idea of like d the dating of the gospels. So like, uh, like very briefly, like where would you put the gospels, especially like wh when do you, when do you have the earliest gospel being written um, in your view? My own conviction puts um, Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, all three to sometime in the 
decade of the 60s of the first century, and John probably uh, to the decade of the 90s. What's interesting is that um, while there are always outliers, if you take the most common dates that uh, more critical scholarship will give, they will put Mark also either into the very late 60s or early 70s. They will put Matthew and Luke usually into the 80s, maybe into the 90s, and they will usually put John into the 90s. So we're all talking about the same roughly 30-year period of time when even into the 90s, uh, people who were teenagers or young adults uh, at the time of uh, Jesus' life and ministry leading up to the year 30 uh, were in some instances still alive. Um, we're not talking, you asked earlier about legends, uh, we're not talking about the typical hundreds of years that was needed in the ancient world before legends with all kinds of miracles about people who never worked miracles began to arise. Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to throw one question here that we had in the live chat or statement because I think it goes along very smoothly with where we're at right now okay. um, about the dating of Mark. Um, so it's from the Godless Engineer. What's up, John? He says, uh, Mark's internal evidence dates it post-70 post AD as far as the dating goes. So I don't know if you have some response to this. I know you put Mark, um, according to what you just said, in the 60s, according to your view. I don't know what internal evidence um, the uh, person is thinking of. The most common uh, that is held uh, for that perspective is the fact that Jesus predicts in Mark chapter 13, uh, the destruction of the temple, which in fact occurred in AD 70. Um, if you believe that it is impossible, either supernaturally or even naturally, to read the signs of the times, this was a period in which Rome was... Uh, had, had a fierce grip on its empire. Uh, it did not tolerate anything that it considered to be treason. Starting in 6 AD with a man named Judas the Galilean, there had been sporadic revolts. Uh, nothing hard for Rome to squelch, but uh, as the decades went by, there were more and more of these, uh, a movement that... Uh, would eventually be called the, the Zealots. Individual people had that name, but the, the movement would really crystallize in the 60s, uh, was little by little uh, becoming more and more upset with Rome. Even a shrewd thinker looking into the future without any divine guidance could well have predicted that eventually um, the nation centered around Jerusalem would rebel against Rome. After all, they had had one successful, amazing, seemingly miraculous rebellion in uh, 164 BC, still celebrated today by the Jewish festival of Hanukkah when they threw off the um, Syrian uh, overlords that had overrun their country, outnumbered five to one. And so there was this belief that if we just trust God and uh, are faithful and obedient, eventually he'll help us repeat this Maccabean miracle. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't take uh, necessarily uh, supernatural insight for somebody to say, within about a generation, all the signs are suggesting that uh, group of Jews is going to rebel against Rome. But short of that miraculous intervention, and Rome outnumbered them in weaponry as well as manpower far more than the Syrians ever did. Um, Rome's response is going to come in and be to massacre them and destroy their city. And the temple happens to be in the city and it's the holiest center of all. That's going to be the point of attack. Once you take that piece out of the puzzle as something that had to have already happened for Mark to claim that Jesus predicted it, there's no external evidence. Uh, there's, there's no internal evidence, excuse me, I should say, that requires a, a pre-70 date. Mm. Well, thank you for that response. Um, so let's keep going here. We'll hit a few more questions on the way out if you guys have questions. Uh, but let's talk about this idea of legendary development for a little bit. Um, I think that one of the most potent examples, if you could say, is this idea of, let's say, the resurrection. Like if you read the Gospel of Mark, especially if you take the short ending, you have a very short um, discourse on the resurrection. Um, and as it seems like progressively as you get through Matthew and Luke to John, it expands and expands um, in terms of what they say of what happened at the resurrection. So I think a lot of people will say that this is a sign of legendary development of people adding to these stories over time. So like, what's kind of your thoughts on this idea of the legendary development of the Gospels? Well, um, I do think that Mark intended to end with verse 8, where um, the young man has said at the tomb to the women, uh, um, go tell his disciples that uh, he is going before them to Galilee, and he will meet them there. And the women went out, but they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, that can't be the sum total of the knowledge of the church in Rome to whom Mark was writing, or they never would have become a Christian church. <laughs> they had to already have known the story of the resurrection as part of Christian preaching for the past 30 years. Why would Mark stop at that point then? Mark's is the gospel that consistently stresses the fear and the failure of Jesus' closest followers. Not to depress people, but as a way of reminding them, they know what happened. They know the story of the resurrection 30 years earlier. They know that a, a church throughout the Roman Empire has been planted, however small and fledgling it is in places. And they know that uh, those disciples were used mightily was anybody in the 60s in Rome? If you're familiar with Nero's persecution, this is where Christians first took it the hardest hmm. from state-sponsored persecution. Were any of them feeling like they were afraid or maybe even failures, maybe had refused to admit that they were believers? You bet they were. Hmm. And Mark writes a, a gospel of comfort in this way. Matthew and Luke tell the, the stories that you know would have been circulated if people came to Christian faith in the first place. Um, interestingly, Luke tells only stories of appearances in Jerusalem. 
Matthew tells only a story of an appearance in Galilee, and John has appearances in both places. So that's not really legendary development. It's simply combining a couple of sources and their emphases. If you want to see legendary development, you go to the probably mid to late second century Gospel of Peter, which is apocryphal, which uh, has uh, all kinds of fanciful detail, uh, even compared to the miracles in the New Testament. And there you have an account of Jesus actually emerging from the tomb. It's interesting. That story is never told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you want to create a legend, don't you want to satisfy curiosity about how Jesus got out? Mm. Did, did he push everything with Superman strength? Uh, did somebody come and, and uh, as the story went, to uh, bribe the soldiers so they let him out? Um, the Gospels never tell us, uh, the canonical ones, but the Gospel of Peter says he came out with two men and angelic in appearance on either side of him and the angel's heads stretched up to the clouds but jesus head was higher than the clouds and behind them walking all by itself was a cross and a voice from heaven called down saying did you preach to those who sleep descent into hell preaching to those who are dead and jesus does not reply the cross replies and mm. says yes now that's a legend <laughs> nothing like that in the new testament mm. so why do you think then that uh, in the gospels you'll see a little bit more of detail in each of these um leading up to john where you have a lot of information on the resurrection like very briefly like what's kind of like your thoughts on that well, that's actually more the exception than the rule. If you go through and look at the three gospels that have the most in common, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Matthew and Luke add events and teachings from Jesus' life, not found in Mark, but where they parallel Mark, um, in Luke's case, it's somewhere between 70 and 80% of the time, Luke abbreviates the story. Mm. He tells it shorter. It's not quite as consistent in Matthew, but it's still uh, more than 60% of the time. Um, John is a supplementary gospel providing all kinds of information in a different context, perhaps 30 years after the others. Um, and so it's not a case that John expands much of anything. He just, as he says, there would have been so many things Jesus did or said, you could fill the world with books, a bit of a hyperbole. And he's adding things that the others simply don't have. Hmm. Uh, so, yes, it's true. If you're talking about numbers of resurrection appearances, there are more. But if you're talking about an actual parallel matthew mark john all tell the story of christ walking on the water in just about exactly the same length and amount of detail um, if anything john is slightly shorter same is true with the 
feeding of the 5,000, which is the one miracle that's in all four Gospels. Mm. Um, no. Awesome. So uh, let's go to another question here. And let's talk about this idea of contradictions in the Gospels. I know um, there's a lot of people who might be famous for bringing up this idea that there's contradictions in the Gospels. Um, there's all kinds of stuff we could kind of look at, whether it's like how many women are at the tomb or the death of Judas, or, you know, you got all these things. But like in a general sense, when um, someone may say, hey, Craig, you know, those gospels, they're, they're full of contradictions. We shouldn't believe them. They're not reliable. They contradict one another. Like what kind of or like your general thoughts about this idea? Right. Depending on who asks me the question, uh, I'm tempted to go in, in one of two directions. Mm -hmm. um, if it's someone I don't know at all um, and I don't know if they even have specific examples in mind or they have just heard someone else say, and, and they're repeating what they've heard. Um, I may ask, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of apparent contradictions. Um, which ones are you most interested in? Uh, what, what troubles you the most? As a way to find out if, if they're aware, uh, even of what uh, gets called that. If somebody mentions something specific, like uh, two accounts, actually one is in Matthew, the other is in the book of Acts, uh, of uh, the death of Judas, then we can go to those texts and, and say, well, are we talking about two things that cannot logically be true at the same time? Or are we talking about a variety of perspectives on one event? Um, sometimes I will just lead with the comment that the vast majority of what today tend to get called contradictions are simply uh, reflections of the freedom that people in the first century world uh, and before and after had in telling stories uh, to include certain details or not in different situations, to paraphrase in a world without quotation marks or anybody had any felt need for them, um, to uh, explain and expand on events or to abbreviate and to summarize them. Um, if you have uh, a story, as in several places where uh, there appear to be two characters, two blind men at a particular uh, encounter with Jesus, where one of the Gospels only mentions one. Uh, it's interesting that almost always one of those is a spokesman. Uh, one of those people talks. And if you study the history of oral storytelling, uh, typically... There are many people present for an event, but a storyteller focuses in on the people that speak or act. You don't try to talk about, uh, oh, I spoke in uh, New York City to a crowd of 500 and you start delineating every person there. Um, you ask me about that event and I'll say, you know, the most interesting question that came at that event was this one young lady who said such and such. And by that, I don't mean that I spoke to an audience of one. I'm just focusing on the interesting speaker. Hmm. You would have a contradiction if one of the gospels said somewhere, 
there was only one blind person present. But that never happens. And speaking of blind people, they tended to be much more common in the ancient world, and they tended to hang out in twos or threes for company and support. And actually makes very good sense. Awesome. Uh, we'll kind of go to a pair of questions here as we start to wrap things up here in terms of what I have. If anyone else has questions uh, for Craig here, be sure to throw them in the live chat. We'll hit some on the way out. Um, but let's talk about the Gospel of John for a second because um, when I f first encountered this idea a few years ago, I was very like, didn't realize this my whole life. Uh, but the Gospel of John is very different. Um, it is. Than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, so some people may say that this idea, that this gospel is like a later development because it's putting in all the logical information or things like that. So when we look at like the, the reliability of the gospel of John, like why do you think John's so different? And then why do you think that John would still be reliable? It's a question that is worth someone getting what is called a synopsis of the gospels that puts in parallel columns, uh, parallel events in more than one gospel, and going through um, passage by passage, it is very rare to find an entire story unique to John's gospel that doesn't have language in it somewhere that makes you think, boy, that sounds just like something I've read in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. There's no question that John's desire was to not primarily repeat the information from the first three gospels, though he does at times, but for about 80% of the time uh, to present different events. But they're not different in kind. There are people who are healed that we don't know about from the other three, but there are miraculous healings in them. There is Lazarus raised from the dead, a tremendous miracle, but there are resurrection accounts in the other gospels. One of the reasons that John seems so different is his own style as an author. And there are places, uh, John three is a great example. Jesus talking with Nicodemus, it's clearly going back and forth. Nicodemus doesn't say anything more um, at a certain point. And Jesus keeps talking and breaks into third person language, talking not about I himself, but about the son, referring to his relationship with his heavenly father. And somewhere, give or take a few verses around that very famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that Whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That's no longer Jesus talking, but John's words. And it appears that John writes up much of Jesus' words in his own unique style, which again was perfectly acceptable in that world. And as more and more people have less and less of scripture memorized today, is uh, more common as well as somebody just paraphrases in their own words something out of the text but isn't necessarily falsifying it in the process mm. 
So let's go to one last question here. And I saw one question and we'll hit any more that anyone else has um, on our way out. But um, let's talk about this idea of why not so similar. Um, you know, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that have a lot some similar information in them. I don't have the exact percentage off the top of my head. I'm sure you do though. Um, but so like, why do you think the synoptics are so similar? Um, and what would you, how would you kind of respond to someone who would say this kind of damages the reliability of the gospels? Because it just seems like they're like pretty much maybe copying off one another and maybe adding a little bit of information here and there. Well, you're right. The, the statistics are important. Um, only about half of Matthew is made up of repeat information from Mark. Um, a little bit less than that uh, in Luke. And yes, there are definitely sentences that are copied verbatim. That happens enough that if I had two or three students in a class and they turned in papers to me and there was that much verbatim similarity, I would say, I know these people colluded. I know one copied from another. Um, and so scholars do say that most probably Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke both used Mark as a source for some of their information, but it rarely extends to more than a minority of an individual story or passage or summary of Jesus teaching. Much of it is reworded, put in their own words, sometimes with parts selected to emphasize the themes that those gospel writers want to most emphasize. And each has, has a somewhat different collection of emphases about Jesus. Um, and then, they go their own separate ways with information that uh, is not found in Mark. Uh, a number of sayings that Matthew and Luke have in common, not found in Mark, that if you just pick them out, could read like uh, the greatest sayings of Jesus. Today, we'd, uh, well, a few years ago, we would have put it on a DVD and called it the best of Jesus. Um, and we know that people wrote books like that in the ancient world. Um, so, uh, yes, there are similarities. There are enough similarities to know that there's some kind of a literary relationship there. But the differences substantially uh, outweigh those similarities. Um, they each have their own purposes to their own audiences uh, that they want to emphasize. Hmm. All right. So let's go to a little bit of Q&A here. We have one question. If there's anything else, um, we'll be sure to throw it up here um, in these next few minutes. But it's a question from uh, Ramon the Large. How's it going, Ramon? He says, um, what is the best evidence for the witness for the 500 witnesses and for the dating of Mark? God bless. <laughs> well, um, I can go backwards. Um, dating of Mark uh, simply follows the uh, testimony of second and third century Christians who put um, Mark with Peter in Rome um, at the time of or just prior to uh, the persecution initiated by Emperor Nero. And uh, that appears in different ways in several different authors. And unless you discount it all, 
as uh, just made up out of whole cloth. And then you have to ask the question, why didn't people make up different things? Uh, that much alone uh, enables us to put Mark uh, into the 60s. Um, the best evidence for the 500 witnesses? Well, there's only one piece of evidence. So it is either the best or the worst or both. Um, and that is Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where he is giving uh, a list, uh, starting in verse 3, of the people who saw Jesus alive after his death. Uh, all to build up to the fact that he too was an eyewitness, but as he says, as to one untimely born. You could almost translate that as to somebody uh, who is aborted or miscarried, except that means not carried to full term. And this is like he stayed in the womb too long. But the point is, uh, he had an experience of the risen Lord on the Damascus Road that was at a different time, not during the 40 day period that Acts says Jesus was appearing to many folks. And yet he is utterly convinced that it was the same Lord Jesus that he had every bit as uh, physical and embodied an experience of the Lord as uh, the gospels describe. Um, who were those 500? We're not told. Um, all that we're told about them is that most of them are still alive when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians which we can date pretty precisely to about the year 55, give or take the year. And he also says, though some of them have fallen asleep, the metaphor for death. But the point is, you don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe Peter or James or, or any of the others. Um, these are people, presumably at least some of them, known to the Corinthians, presumably at least some of them accessible to the Corinthians, or it's would be a little strange for Paul to have made the point. And in essence, he's saying, if you don't trust me, there are plenty of other people you can ask uh, who had their own experiences and then uh, judge for yourself. Hmm. Uh, another question here from Caruso Apologetic says, what is your opinion on the pre-Markin source? Uh, how early does it date to? That's a great name. I've <laughs> never thought of naming a, a boy Caruso. Oh, oh, I see. It's the name of, a, of an organization. Um, the pre-Markin source. Uh, I'm curious as to what they think the pre-Markin source is. Maybe the idea of Q? If they're talking about Q, um, which for people who don't know, what that is, or immediately think of somebody on James Bond movies. Um, Q is the first letter of the German word quella, which simply means source. And I mentioned a minute ago that there are, I didn't give the number, but there are about 235 verses in Matthew and Luke. Most of them sayings of Jesus, not quite all, but most of them, uh, that Matthew and Luke parallel each other, but Mark doesn't have. and if, in fact, they did come from a common source, uh, many people, including fairly critical scholars, would date them to the 50s, which would then make them prior to Mark. Um, but we're into a lot of guesswork at that point, and uh, we ought to admit it. 
Uh, awesome here. So that's uh, the questions that we have as far as I know of. So I'll throw one more question at you that isn't um, that I didn't send you, but okay. you did just write a book about it. So you, I, th I think you might know a little bit. Um, and that's the idea of, I know you recently, I believe, wrote a book about the belief in the existence of God, just like why believe yeah. in God. Um, yeah. So very briefly, we've talked all about New Testament reliability in these past like 45 minutes, but for someone who may be just struggling with like, why believe in God? Like wh what's some of the like general reasons you could bring up here to wrap things up for like, why believe in a theistic creator? Well, the book was actually not uh, a book putting together arguments for belief, a lot of people have done that. Um, it was taking 10 very common contemporary objections to uh, oh, believing in God. And again, a lot of people have written books on that topic too, but it struck me that in most of these cases, there were key passages in the New Testament in, in my area of specialty, that weren't getting the attention that perhaps they deserved and that would would help deal with uh, some of these issues. Um, if I were to uh, answer the question uh, the way you put it, um, I might start with uh, what philosophers have called the cosmological argument for the existence of God, namely, the existence of the cosmos, the universe, and uh, despite the popularity of Stephen Hawking before his death of talking about uh, multiple universes going back uh, indefinitely, um, there is a, a world-renowned uh, philosopher by the name of William Lane Craig who has written on this topic, and basically he says, that is not a logically coherent argument to talk about an actual succession of moments beginning from infinity past. I can think if I were traveling in a time machine, if one had been invented, that I could go infinitely into the past, and I can think about going infinitely into the future, but it is not a... a concept that actually is coherent, that makes any sense to talk about starting from infinity past, mm. because then you don't have infinity. So in essence, uh, and as far as I can tell, the Big Bang Theory is uh, still very respectable and widely held in uh, atheist science, with my daughter who recently got her PhD in molecular biology and is now doing pulmonary research, very timely research here in Denver. Uh, with her permission, I like to quote her from when she came home from church at the age of eight from a Sunday school class and proudly announced, mommy, I've figured out, daddy, I've figured out creation versus evolution. And we kind of looked at each other, tried not to roll our eyes visibly, wondering what was coming. And she uttered, one of the most profound things anybody could ever say, even though it came out sounding funny. If there was a big bang, there had to be a big banger. Hmm. Um, no atheist has yet gotten around that argument, not persuasively. Why do we have something rather than nothing? Something has never been demonstrated to emerge from nothing. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, um, and thank you for uh, correcting me on what your book is about. I apologize. I misunderstood. No problem. Uh, 
Um, but I mean, we're kind of here at the end of our time. So we, we've covered a lot of information. Um, is there any kind of like last thoughts you want to give before we wrap things up here? Yeah. I have met a lot of people um, in the course of my life uh, with all kinds of different beliefs, religious beliefs, irreligious beliefs, atheist, theist. There are some people, there's no question that bottom line, the issue for them are the deep philosophical and scientific questions of our day. But an awful lot of people that I have met, once you get to know them and you probe a little more deeply, have been deeply hurt by people in the name of religion, in the name of God, maybe even in the name of Christianity. I wish I could apologize for all of them um, and say that's not... Uh, the experience of everybody. That's not the experience of a majority of people in the history of the world. Um, it is tragic that uh, some of us tell folks, just believe because we don't have good answers for them. Or you have to believe in a young earth, which is scientifically absurd. Now I've alienated half my audience. Or you have to vote Republican. There's no call for aligning with a political party and Christian faith. Um, or your friend's going to hell. He died. We know for sure he was a bad person. So many things that have been said. Um, I was blessed uh, as a young adult. I came to faith not through a church. Um, but through a campus life, Youth for Christ Club in my high school. And I was blessed very early on with leadership that said over and over again, don't blame Jesus for the jerks who do horrible things in his name. Now, if that's all that ever happened by Christians, there'd be a huge problem. Hmm. But if you could get to know the... Two billion people on our planet who name the name of Jesus, you would find a huge majority of them living sacrificially, living above their circumstances, living in, in ways that uh, are winsome and likable and caring for one another. Find those people. Mm. Focus on those people. Mm. You can find them even in the United States of America. They're usually in churches that get no press, no mm. attention, because there are no scandals. And uh, give Jesus a chance. It could change your life in the most magnificent ways ever. Mm. Yeah, I think it's so important to not let the 0.1% give you a bad taste in the 99.9%. Uh, Craig, there's so much good stuff that you've brought into here um, in the past 50 minutes. I appreciate you so much for your time. Uh, thank you, everyone who tuned in. You got John and Ethan and Lindsay Mendenwall, who I believe you know, says hi. And everyone oh, hi, Lindsay. Um, 
Thank you so much. This is it here in Apologetics, guys. If you're here for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like. If you're listening to me a podcast, I encourage you to subscribe as well. You can rate us and help us push forward. Uh, thank you, everyone, for your support. You can support the show at patreon.com slash adhere in apologetics. Right now, with where our funding, we're about 75% funded, more or less. So thank you, everyone, for your support. You can support for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon. Uh, Craig, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. So much good information. You're most welcome. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This is it here in Apologetics, and we'll catch you next time. God bless everyone.